This is part five, the last part of our Uncommon Sense series. And in case you're just joining us for the first time this week, or maybe if you forgot what happened in parts one through four, which maybe that happens to some of us, um, what the premise for this series is very simple. It's simply that when you take um, an inventory of all the things you know and all the decisions you make on a daily basis, you would put most of them in the category of common sense. But when it comes to the most important things, um, those things are not a matter of common sense. They require an uncommon sense. And so in this series, that's basically what our premise is. Most things in life are common sense, but the most important things are not. And in this series, what we've been seeing is that Jesus, as he interacts with people, he often approaches them and meets them on the level of common sense. But then he shows them how knowing God and knowing what he's about requires some uncommon sense. And that's what he did for them, and that's what he's doing for us also in this series. Um, and so today's part five. It's the last part. And the, the whole theme for today as we get into this topic of uncommon sense all revolves around these three words. And this is, this is the name of the, of the message, giving to God, giving to God. And before we get into that, I want you to think for just a moment. What's the best gift you've ever given to someone? One uh, Halloween, my, my uh, cousin, this was years ago, he dressed up in this giant box, and it was just this big square box around him. He had clothes on and everything, but he had this box on, and ar- around the box, he put wrapping paper and then a bow, and it was, it was like he was a giant present, but you didn't really get the, the, the costume unless you saw his little tag on it. It said, two women from God. So for Halloween, he was God's gift to women. So some of you are saying, like, just my being here is, is a gift <laughs> to people. But just think about that for a moment. What's the best gift you've ever given to someone? That moment you gave it, you saw their eyes light up, and you're like, yes, I nailed it. I got it. Um, and for some of you, the opposite also comes into mind too, right? Some of us have this nightmare of when the time we gave the worst gift possible, the worst gift imaginable. And some of us guys, it happens around Mother's Day or birthdays or Christmas when we give a gift and we're, she's going to love this vacuum cleaner. And we give it to her and she gives us the look and we're like, oh, (laughs) no, we thought it was a good gift. They came with good intention, but it just wasn't. The reason why gifts put so much pressure on us is because of this. It's because the value of your gift communicates the value of the relationship. How much you value that person is communicated by the value of the gift. Now, I realized as an early age, you can't put too much value on the gift. When I was in second grade, I had a crush on a, on a girl in eighth grade. And so on February 14th, I gave her a valentine that said, I love you. And this was a single room uh, grade school. And so she said, oh, that's cute. Hey, everybody, look at the valentine Matt gave me. He loves me. And everyone started laughing. And I'm like, okay, too much value for the actual relationship there. But we all feel this pressure that I need to adequately celebrate the relationship, and that's by picking the right value in this gift. So the big question is then, well, how do you figure out how valuable a gift is? And this is our our first fill-in here. This is the main point. We're going to see if there's actually a spiritual truth we're going to build on top of this. But the two things that determine a gift's value are who gave it and what it is. Sometimes we value a gift not because it has any inherent value in its own, but simply because of who gave it. And if you want to see an example, go in my office and look at all the artwork and paintings. 
I did not buy any of them. They were done by my kids. In fact, here's one of them. This is a piece of art my, my daughter did several, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, and it hangs in my office. Now, if I were to sell this, by the way, it says, thank you, Matthew Arthur. My, my middle name is Arthur, so she tried to spell that, but it was wrong. Thank you, Matthew Arthur, for being a pater. Now, one of two things is true. Either she knows Latin. <laughs> pater is father in Latin. It's, it's possible, right? I mean, she's got great genes going with her. Or she misspelled pastor. I think that's more accurate. She said, thank you, Matthew Arthur, for being a pastor. And it says, from your daughter. Aw. And so this hangs in my office. It's on the back of my door. I see it every single day. Now, if I were to put this on eBay, what would I get for it? The only value is the backside where it's blank. You can still use it for something else, right? To me, this has a lot of value, not because of what it is, but because of who gave it. Um, the opposite could also be true. Um, you could get a gift that just because of its value, you, have, you don't care who gave it to you. You just love it because of what it is. But there's one other part to this, and this is where some, what some of us have experienced, and we're going to build on this. Some of us have received a gift of decent value. It was a good what, but we doubted the intentions of the person who gave it. And so while if it was another person, you would have received that gift and you would have done so with thanks and, and appreciation and joy, because it was this person, now you're doubting their motivations, their intents, what message are they trying to send. Uh, one time for, for Easter, my parents gave me some uh, teeth whitening toothpaste. I'm like, great, toothpaste, but why did it have to be teeth whitening? Like, what are you trying to say here? <laughs> Not that there was a fractured relationship over that or anything. But sometimes when you receive a gift from someone, you start to ask, well, what are their motivations? What are their intentions? And even if the gift is otherwise perfect, if the wrong person gives it, you will despise it. So this brings, us, brings me to our point for today. What can you give to God to adequately value the relationship you have with him. And when it comes to value, remember, it has to come from the right who, and it has to be the right what. Um, what gift can you offer to him that would place fair value on the relationship you have? Now, this puts a lot of pressure on us, right? Pressure because we know that there's so much that we communicate when it comes to giving a gift to someone and how they interpret that. Well, it's magnified when we think about giving a gift to God himself. And what we're going to see today is that when you use common sense to answer that question, you're not going to like the answer. What can I give to God doesn't find the answer that we wish. But thankfully, in an interaction Jesus had with a questionable who and a questionable what, we're going to see that giving to God is not a matter of common sense. It's a matter of uncommon sense. And he's going to see, uh, help us and, and help some other people, too, to, to see where God wants us to land on this whole topic of giving to him. So we're going to unpack that as we go today. We're going to jump into Luke chapter 7, and this is, again, another account. Um, Luke was writing down his account of Jesus' life. And one thing to remember about Luke, when he adds details, it's not by accident. It's not like writing an essay in high school. He wasn't trying to fill a certain number of words. Every word, every phrase he added was for a purpose. And we're going to see some important details come out here in the first few verses. So Luke chapter 7, Jesus sets the stage for how we understand the uncommon sense when it comes to giving to God. 
One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And I want to pause there. Apparently, Jesus never turned down a dinner invitation. Um, if you were here a few weeks ago, we, we talked about how Jesus had dinner with the tax collectors and the, and the sinners, all the wrong people. Well, today he's having dinner with all the right people, all the Pharisees, all the religious people. So he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Now, this is going to be an important detail in just a second. That's why I put it in yellow. We only put important things in yellow. Jesus is reclining at the table. That was a common custom. They didn't sit in chairs like what you're sitting in right now. Um, Traditionally, the custom would go that they would recline at the table, either on a mat or even on the bare floor if they were really poor. So they would recline with their head near the table and their feet away from it, which might have been strategic if you remember their hygiene back then. Uh, They didn't take showers as regularly. They didn't take baths as regularly. Um, Their feet could get pretty nasty because they didn't have, you know, nice tennis shoes that they could just leave at the door. And so maybe they said, let's keep our feet away from the table as much as possible. So their heads near the table, Jesus reclining there with his feet away. So Luke is setting up the account here. So this next verse shows us the who and the what. A woman in that town, in that area, who everyone knew had lived a sinful life. She learned that Jesus was, have, was eating at the Pharisee's house. So what does she do? She came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, we need to pause here because we need to figure out the who and the what before we move on. Uh, this, this woman who had lived a sinful life. And by the way, any scholar of the Greek, any scholar of that culture would agree that this is a, 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 pol- a polite way of saying that she was a prostitute. That was her business. So she was a sinful woman. Everyone knew it. Everyone recognized it. And whenever she would walk down the street, people would point the finger and say, there's that sinful woman again. And one day, she happens to learn, this wasn't in the newspaper for weeks ahead of time, it was a split moment thing. People are spreading the word, hey, Jesus is just down the street eating with that Pharisee. And so this word gets out. She learns that he's over there, and so she decides, I need to go see him. But before she runs off, she grabs one thing, not an autograph pen. Um, it was an alabaster jar of perfume. The one thing she brought with her was this perfume. So now we need to back up a little bit. Who was she really? You see, when you look at Luke chapter 7, as he's building up to this story, to this account, one of the main elements you see is the work of John the Baptist. And if you want to read about it at home, you can. You've got some references in your growth group questions on the other side of the message notes. But what, what John the Baptist did was he would call people who were sinners just like this woman, and he would say, repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is coming. This, the promised one is here. And, and John was preaching this repentance to people. And what would often happen was that, like, for example, soldiers would come up to John the Baptist and they would say, John, we want to repent. We want to turn to God. What does that look like for us? And John the Baptist would tell them, stop being bullies. Treat people nicely and fairly and with justice. And tax collectors would come up to John the Baptist and they would say, John, we want to repent and turn to God. What does that look like for us? And, and John would say, it, it looks like being fair. Stop collecting more than you should. And John the Baptist was basically the first century coach for Christians, uh, people who wanted to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to turn away from sin. 
And what we see at the end of Luke 7 is the impact it made. Before people ever met Jesus, they knew that he came with grace. So what stands to reason, as we look at the way Luke sets this up, it stands to reason that this woman has heard about Jesus already and that she has been told that her, her sins of her past have been forgiven. And there's a new way forward to honor God and to live in that forgiveness. And she's overwhelmed with this joy. And then one day, what does she hear? Here in my own town, just down the road, maybe a couple blocks away, Jesus is eating with some people. And so she says, this is my moment. I need to meet him. So she runs to the, to the house where he's eating. But before she does, we have to talk about the what? She grabbed this alabaster jar of perfume. What are we all wondering? <laughs> Why? Um, what we know about the alabaster jars of perfume is that they were very rare, very expensive. The alabaster was a soft stone, and so they would mold it to hold just a certain amount of perfume. And it had a long, narrowed neck. So the only way to, to use the perfume inside was to break open the top of the bottle. So it's basically once you open it up, use it or lose it. So it was expensive. It was a one-time thing. So I guess where I start questioning things is, well, how did this woman pay for it? You ever think about that? If she has this expensive jar of perfume, how do you think she paid for it? What stands to reason is that she took the income from her business to pay for this. This expensive jar of perfume was a trophy of how successful she was at sinning. But why did she have it? Well, when you're in her line of business, you want to attract people to yourself, right? And so maybe she was saving this alabaster jar of perfume for a day when there would be plenty of men roaming the streets, and she would break it open and pour it on herself to draw people to her to get an edge over the competition. See, this sinful woman had quite the past, but she has already encountered grace and forgiveness and now as she knows Jesus is here in town, maybe she's looking at this alabaster jar of perfume and she's asking, well, what do I need this for anymore? Maybe it's a source of temptation. She's like, I know I could put this on and make so much money in one day, two days, whatever. And so she comes to a crossroads. Well, what does she do? She decides to go find Jesus with this alabaster jar. And it seems like she doesn't even have a plan going to this dinner party. She's just going with the one thing she knows she has to surrender to him. So she goes to the party. Remember, Jesus reclined at the table. She stood behind Jesus at his feet. Why behind him at his feet? Because his head is at the table and his feet are behind him. So she's at his feet. She began to notice something. She's studying him. She's noticing that even though he's in this house, nobody has washed his feet yet. So while there's nothing she can do with his face, with his head, nothing with that, she says, I'm going to do what I can do here. So she reaches for his feet. She didn't bring water. She didn't bring a towel. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Tears knowing that she's been loved and forgiven. Then she wiped them down with her hair. She kissed his feet, and she poured perfume on them. Now, what you're all thinking in this room, and if you're watching online, this is what you're thinking right now. That's weird. Right? No one's going to do this for one another in this room. And, and this is just flat out weird. And, and I don't want to 
explain this away culturally and say that it wasn't weird back then. This got attention back then, but I don't know if they would have qualified it as beyond the realm of what was normal. See, what was common practice back then is that when a guest came to your house, the very least you could do is to, is to give them some water so that they could wash their own feet. Um, in today's culture, what we would do is when they come to your house, you take their coat. You show them where they can place their, their shoes, whatever. You know, you welcome them in. Back then, hey, here's some water. Wash your feet. Um, and if you really love them, what you would do is wash their feet for them. The other thing you do back then, you would greet them with a kiss. Well, she saw that no one had kissed Jesus, and so, so she's kissing his feet. Um, you would anoint them with, with oil or their head with water to, to let them uh, be refreshed. She, ref- she uh, pours perfume on his feet. You see, this wasn't necessarily weird. It was just she was working with what she had. She didn't have access to his head, to his face, so she served his feet. Next verse. Now, the Pharisee asks a good question. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, remember this word, he saw what was happening. He saw her actions. He saw her behavior. He saw what she was offering, but he didn't see something else. We'll get to that in a second. He saw what she was doing. He said to himself, if this man truly were a prophet from God who knows everything, he would, get this, he would know who and what. He would know who is offering him this gift and what it is she's bringing to him. He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Finally, there's a moment with a Pharisee that I actually agree with what he's saying. He's absolutely right. Jesus should be repelled at this sinful woman and the quality of the gift which she is bringing for him. This gift is a trophy of her sin, and now she's bringing it and using it as a, as a perfume uh, anointing for Jesus' feet. And Jesus should be repelled at the very idea that she is touching him. And for once, I agree with the Pharisee that Jesus seems to not know what's going on. But we need to apply this real quickly. You see, this Pharisee should have applied the same thing to himself. He should have recognized that his, because of who he was, his identity, and because of what he had, his, his inventory, there was no place for him to offer anything to God either. Same is true of you. Same is true of me. Because I am a sinful person. It's not just that God's our creator and we're creatures. You know, there's a gap there. But that's even worse because we are sinful creatures and he's the holy creator. And there's a gap there that we have no right and no ability to go across. And have you ever thought about this? I mean, what is it that you can actually give to God? This is why some of you maybe don't give to God. And this is why some of you don't stop to give God your time in prayer because you've thought this through and common sense suggests that we have nothing to give. There's really two things we can give to God. Number one, money, possessions. Can we really give money to God? Could we give him $5, dollars $5, $5 And would that make any difference to the God who owns every single star in the universe? Can you really give him anything? The other thing we can give him is time. Well, maybe we put our skills to use, our abilities to use, and we say, God, I'm giving you this time. Or maybe we pause to, for a time of prayer. And we say, God, I'm giving you this time. You have access to my time. But have you thought about that? God is outside of time. He has no need for time. He is as present 10 minutes ago as he is present 10 minutes from now. What does it mean to give God your time? He doesn't need 
our time. And this is the reason why some of us have, have maybe been curbed in the amount we want to give to, to a church, to a local uh, church. Um, this is the reason why some of us maybe don't spend as much time in prayer as other people do, because we've thought through this. And it's a matter of common sense. This is number two. It's a matter of common sense that because of our identity and because of our inventory, what we have, we have nothing to offer him. And this is where common sense leads us. But as we're about to see, giving to God is not a matter of common sense. This Pharisee was looking at things from one perspective. He was looking, he was watching and seeing everything this woman was doing. He saw her behavior. He saw what she was offering. And he said, Jesus should know what it is she's doing. But Jesus says it's not so much about what she's doing or what she brought. The better thing to look at is who she is. So Jesus redirects the conversation. Jesus answered this Pharisee. Finally, we get his name. His name is Simon. Why does his name just appear now? Maybe because God or Jesus is confronting him in love, as much love as he has for this woman, he has for Simon. Simon, Simon, we need to talk. I have something to tell you. And when, by the way, whenever you see this in the Bible, get out your red pen because whatever comes next, you know is going to be um, earth-shattering. So tell me, teacher, he said, I'm ready to hear. So Jesus begins to tell him the uncommon sense. Two people owed money. This is completely opposite from what Simon was working with. Simon believed that when it comes to giving gifts to God, it's all about what we give. And Jesus said, you know what we give? All we have is debt. We give give debt to God. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. It says certain money lender because the money lender isn't important. Jesus says, I want you to focus on the two people who owed money because that's you. You're not the money lender. You're the one who owes the money. One person owed him 500 denarii. Um, Each denarius is worth about a day's worth of wages. So you do the math. 500 denarii. The other owed him 50 So neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of them both. You owe me 500 days' worth of wages. You owe me 50. You can't pay. I forgive you both. And Simon's probably thinking, great story. What does this have to do with anything? Jesus gets to the point. Now, which of them will love the moneylender more? Which one will show more joy, more enthusiasm, more excitement, more love, will do anything to thank the one who forgave their debt? And the answer leads us to an uncommon sense. Simon is hesitant. He says, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. He kind of gets where this is going. Jesus says, good job, Simon. You get a gold star. You've judged correctly. The one who had the bigger debt will have more love. So it's not so much what they give. It's more who. It's more what they've been forgiven. So Jesus then applies this in just a moment, but I want to pause right here because here's the uncommon sense that Jesus is leading us to. See, the value of of your relationship is determined by God's gift, not yours. Next slide here. The value of relationship is determined by God's gift, not yours. It's nature for us to confront God and say, God, you should love me because of what I offer you. God, you should do good things for me because I've been giving you my money, my possessions, my time. I've done all these things. And Jesus says, that's the common sense approach, and that's the wrong approach. The uncommon sense is that you begin as a debtor. 
and you see what God has given you. The value of your relationship isn't based on the value of your gift. It's based on the value of his. So Jesus goes on. He says, well, then he turns to the woman and he said to Simon, Simon, I know that you saw what this woman was doing, but do you see this woman? Do you really see who she is? I came into your house and you, Simon, did not give me any water. The bare custom, the bare thing you could have done. Just give me some water for my feet. You didn't give me any, but she saw the need. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. So Simon, which are you? The one who owed 50 or the one who owed 500? He goes on. You did not give me a kiss, Simon, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. Common custom. Kiss, you know, guys kiss each other's on the, on the cheek. That's just how they did it back then. I'm so glad we just shake hands today. Back then they would kiss each other. This woman did not have access to Jesus' face to kiss him on the cheek. So what did she do? She kissed him on the feet. You did not put oil on my head. Common custom. She didn't have access to my head, so she poured something even more valuable perfume on my feet. Well, what's the point? Bottom line, therefore, I tell you, Simon, her many sins, she's the 500 denarii person, her many sins have been forgiven, as is testified by her great love. But whoever, (coughs) Simon, has been forgiven little, loves little. You see a different take on on giving at this point. It's not a matter of common sense. It's a matter of we have received from God a gift that determines the value of our relationship with him. And now everything we give back is simply a response to it. Um, For this sinful woman, what that looked like was now she was entering a new phase of life where this perfume that she had, it was a representation of her successful business from the past, which she was no longer proud of. It was a symbol of her promise for the future and her, her business um, where it would you know, attract more people to her. And she said, I don't want that anymore. So she took this perfume, which was designed to attract people to her, and she uses it to attract people to their Savior. That's what happens when God gives us the gift of forgiveness. It, it forces us to reevaluate, reprioritize all the things we have and to say, this is what it used to do for me. This is where it used to lead me, but now I'm going to give that over to God to draw attention to him. Now, really quick, here, here's the danger for this. The danger is when we say, God doesn't want or need my money, God doesn't want or need my time, and we just leave it at that common sense, what happens is we create a category that God has no influence on. And eventually what we'll find is things in that category will start to take the place of God. And so it is the ultimate expression of freedom and faith to take the things you have and to say, God, I give them to you. You have power and control over them. These things had the potential to draw attention to me and my goals, but I give them for you and your kingdom. This is the way I put it in film number three. Lots of words. But giving to God reprioritizes your inventory. You start to look at your things differently so that you can celebrate how God has redeemed your identity. Your valuable gifts do not communicate, cannot communicate the value of your relationship with God. That's impossible. 
But what can happen is that you can reprioritize your valuable gifts to simply honor and celebrate how God has changed you. So Jesus is going to wrap this up then with a woman. He says, all right, we need to go forward here. Um, What is the next step? And so as he addresses this woman, here's how the, the section ends. So Jesus said to this woman, this is amazing, your sins are forgiven. She had just given him the most valuable, probably the most valuable thing she had, and she gave it up. And then Jesus said, I have something even more valuable than that. Your sins are forgiven. See, when you empty yourself to God, you'll never walk away empty. You'll always walk away with your identity in him. Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to quarrel. They began to say among themselves, get this, who, what? Who is this that he can give forgiveness? Who gives him the right? Um, Jesus says, I'll deal with you later. He addresses the woman, last verse, and he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This day isn't about the gift you gave. And your forgiveness has nothing to do with this perfume you poured on my feet. Your faith has saved you. Your identity in me is what has really changed you around. Now, I want you to go today in peace, knowing that your sins are forgiven by faith. Uh, Here's one last thought for you, then we'll close up. The value of the gift communicates the value of the relationship. So what does that say when God gave you his own son? What did God communicate? When Jesus was born, what was he telling you when his son went to the cross? God was communicating to you, and more than communicating, he was establishing for you a relationship that would completely redeem your identity. And the value of his gift communicates the value of your relationship with him. And now what we get to do is reprioritize our, our things, our items, our inventory, and to say, God, this used to be something that would bring attention to me and value to me and honor to me. God, I want to place it under you. I want you to be honored through what I have. And that is the uncommon sense when it comes to giving to God. So I hope you enjoyed this series, and I hope you can join us again next week. We're going to dive into a new topic uh, where we talk about our brokenness and how Jesus is uniquely able, the gift, this valuable gift from God, uniquely able to fill our every need. Let's close today with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, there's always a constant struggle between our identity in you and the things we have, and there, there can be such an easy conflict between those two. I pray that you would help me in my heart and all of us in our hearts to to settle the identity that we have in Christ. To see the valuable gift you gave to us in him and how he transforms our identity to to be forgiven, to be loved, to be your children, and to know that we have an inheritance in heaven waiting for us. And then help us now today to use our gifts and abilities, our time to to give honor to you and and to invest in your kingdom the one that will never end. I ask those things in Jesus' name as we join in the prayer he taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.